from high above historic Belfont, and still in the smack dab center of the Keystone State, this is Lou Bryson with Seen Through a Glass, a podcast that's mostly about food and drink in central Pennsylvania. We're going to try something new. I'm putting the business up front for a few episodes and cutting back on it. Let me know what you think. You'll find pictures to go with this episode on Instagram at Stag Podcast and on Facebook at Seen Through a Glass. There's also a link to my coffee page where you can drop me a few bucks to help keep this going. If you've already donated, thank you. I do have a favor to ask. Listeners have been telling me how much they enjoyed places they found because I mentioned them on the podcast. And that's great because that's exactly what this is about. But if you do enjoy a place that you heard about on the show, could you please take a moment and let them know you heard about it on Seen Through a Glass? It really helps get the word out. Listener Michael Willie talked about Seen Through a Glass on camera at a beer festival recently, got the word out in Altoona. You can see that clip and the new trailer for the show on my YouTube channel. Just search Lou Bryson on YouTube. New trailer? Well, yes. I put together a one-minute video and an audio episode that's available where you get Seen Through a Glass. It's all about the show. It's what we do, where we're from, and how to listen. It's perfect for sharing with your friends. There's a link in my social media accounts, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or the Lou Bryson channel on YouTube. Remember, the more reviews and ratings we get on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, the better we do on search results. So after this show's over, please take a minute and leave a rating. Thanks for your support. On to the show. Welcome to episode 25, Colorado Rye Whiskey. That's right, Colorado Rye Whiskey. The connection to central Pennsylvania may seem tenuous, though the subject of our interview spent part of his boyhood in Warren, Pennsylvania, but you can hardly speak of rye whiskey without calling back to Pennsylvania. Rye whiskey started elsewhere, most likely in central Europe, and the first recorded distillation of rye in North America took place in Massachusetts. But it was in Pennsylvania that rye whiskey became famous. The Whiskey Rebellion in the Monongahela Valley wasn't about bourbon, it was about rye. George Washington may well have started distilling rye whiskey at Mount Vernon. He had, briefly, one of the largest commercial distilleries in the early United States because of whiskey he tasted in Pennsylvania when he was dealing with the uprising. According to my interview guest, Todd Leopold, of Leopold Brothers Distilling in Denver, the unusual still they use probably also came from Germany originally. Todd became famous in the small world of rye whiskey fans for, well, rediscovering the three-chamber still. It's unlike any other whiskey still being used today, or for the last 50 years, so much so that even old distillers didn't remember them, or remember how to use them. I traveled to Denver earlier this month to visit family and have some fun, but I wasn't going to pass up the opportunity to see Todd in that still. I'm going to tell you about the still, and how it works, and about some of the great places we visited on the drive to Colorado, And then I'll tell you about a fun event I went to when we got back to Central PA. But first, well, a first in what I'm drinking today. Todd gave me the first bottle released of six-year-old three-chamber still rye and asked me to drink it, not put it on a shelf. So three days ago, I sat down with two friends from our little Penns Valley Whiskey Club, and we tasted it. Then we tasted the blend of three-chamber rye and George Dickel rye that came out last year for comparison. It was fun. So let's have a listen to what we're drinking today. I'm here with my two friends. This is uh, Dave Dries. Hey, Lou. Good to see you. Good to be here. And uh, Rich Gallup. How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. Thanks for uh, thanks for helping. Well, yeah, thanks for drinking my whiskey with me. Yeah. It's a pleasure to help out. <laughs> so we um, we decided to go with these two whiskeys. We got the new uh, Leopold Brothers. Six-year-old three-chamber whiskey at 50%. It is uh, 100 proof. And the earlier release, also at 100 proof, this is the Dickel and Leopold Brothers uh, blend of the three-chamber and the column still rye. So let's let's get at it. Sounds I'm good. opening the uh, three-chamber six-year-old for the first time. Okay. It's rye whiskey. Every glass. You've been talking about this for a while, Lou. I know you've been looking forward to it. <laughs> and this is a this is a 200 milliliter sample. 
Todd told me that um, he was doing all this batching all in 200 milliliters because he wanted people to drink it. I'm happy to honor that request. I'm happy to help out. Yeah. So. Wow. Very, I mean, very different from something like Old Overholt or Michter's or mm, Sazerac Rye. So there's a more, almost like a more grainy note, I think. It's something very different. It is. It's not biting your nose off or anything. Mm -mm, mm -mm. It's almost a little floral or grassy yeah. note to that. Mm. Almost like some kind of flowered toast. I mean, it really like comes together. It does. It sticks a little bit. More wood in this than I remember from the earlier four-year-old. There's not that much wood, but there's some. No, it's at the back. It's almost like it's prickly a little bit. A little sweet right there on the back of the tongue. Mm -hmm. Good long finish. Finish seems to get a little more herbal. Mmm, boy. That is pretty tasty. Yeah. That finish really does carry. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... Mm. Wow. I almost... I can't... Like, I... I want to say thyme, but it's not thyme. Like a dried herb of some kind. Um, maybe just like dried... Um, you know, I... There's a term I use, meadow grass. You know, because you get all those different plants in a meadow it's not just like lawn grass you get that long lanky stuff you get some peppermint mixed in you get all kinds of crap and it's just like a blended Ooh, wow almost a little bit like hay yeah that finish really does stay with you mm -hmm. there's an awful lot going on there mm. Mm. yeah there is i love you get that sweet note right yes. up front and then it, you kind of get the spice comes after yeah you know you know it's almost more I, mean, I don't want to get stupid on words, but it's almost more herbal than spice. You know, I just think of it more like leafy, grassy. It is. Yeah. 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 I'm getting a, a little bit of hint, a hint of mint. Yes. Yes. But it's less than some things. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, it's not like peppermint oil or anything like that. All right. Now, Todd's idea, just from looking at how these stills were um, placed in the distilleries and the very different efficiencies of a column still and a chamber still. This stuff is just more expensive to make than a column still, a lot more. So he thought that what they're actually doing was making a whiskey to blend with a regular column still rye. And that's what we're pouring now, which is the um, George Dickel Leopold Brothers blend uh, came out a couple years ago, or I guess last year. That is a blend of uh, three chamber still rye from Leopold Brothers and column still rye from uh, George Dickel. He worked with um, Nicole Austin on this, and huge respect for both of them. Did I not pour? I didn't pour myself. You didn't any. pour yourself any. That's oh, mighty! What the hell's the matter with me? <laughs> uh, okay. So he thinks this is what they were doing with three-chamber rye whiskey, that they weren't bottling it straight, that they were doing this. Wow. It's much more peppery, but much more sweet, too. Smell both of them. Huge difference. Wow. Yeah. And this is like I, I, I argue all the time. It's not better or worse. It's just really different. There is a really big difference there. It's like some kind of candy. Like a hard candy, one of those spicy mm. old style ones. Mm -hmm. like, like whorehound or something. <laughs> oh, wow, that's very good. That goes down very easy. Yeah. Mm. This is like the nucleus of our local whiskey club. Uh, we get together at, at this table at Dave's house <laughs> and uh, and drink up whiskeys. Um, and I know we did rye one time and I we had did. some of those European ones. And man, they're just so freaking different from American stuff. How, There's a lot that can be done. Sorry. How different is their grain? I mean, Well, that's, that's another thing. Yeah. Although, I gotta believe that some American rye is being made with European rye. Hmm. Wow, that is so different. That is really different. And uh, a little softer on the palate there with the decal. Not quite the same longevity on the finish. 
No, no. The, I just when I I just took another sip of the straight three chamber, and it's got a, a much I don't want to say hotter, but kind of like a little biteier finish. It's, it's spicy, but not. Uh, just, no, I mean at a hundred proof, neither of these is hot. No. Of course, that could just be our scar tissue. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want anybody to put a gun to my head and say, which one do you want to take home? Mm. Yeah, that'd be a tough decision. Yeah, I got two hands. <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right, gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. We're good. We're, well, we'll be good uh, after we shut this down when we finish these whiskeys. <laughs> Thanks, Lou. Appreciate it. Cheers, guys. That was fun. We might have to do that again. As I mentioned, Kathy and I drove out to Colorado, but we didn't take a direct route. The first day, we made it to, let's see, Angola, Indiana. Yeah, I don't know where it is either. But we did stop for dinner at a little brew pub in Fort Wayne called um, Junk Ditch Brewing. Apparently, Fort Wayne was originally built in the middle of a huge marsh, and the Junk Ditch was a kind of drainage canal they built through it in the mid-1800s. The marsh is all gone now. Kind of sad, because it sounds like it was an amazing ecosystem. Anyway, Junk Ditch Brewing was great. I had a black IPA that made me think of the Dead Canary in Phillipsburg, and a solid cream ale. Kathy had an Oktoberfest that tasted proper. But the food just knocked it out of the park. Kind of pumpernickel soft pretzel with a goat cheese and sweet pepper whipped dip, and salmon roulettes. A huge layer of salmon salad with whole grain mustard and thinly sliced scallions sitting on a thick slice of rye toast. We fought over the last bite, and then we remembered our dinners were still coming. <laughs> Kathy had a warm mushroom salad that was delicious, tasty, and textured. I had a flatbread with shrimp and jalapenos with chili crisp slathered all over it. I wound up having half of that for breakfast because it was way too good to toss out. Let me tell you, I did not regret ordering seafood in Indiana. After my cold pizza breakfast, we rolled up to Madison to meet Kathy's cousin Heather and her family for dinner. We got into town a bit early, so went to the Cask and Ale bar for a drink. I was supposed to do a book signing at the Cask and Ale in 2020, one of many that got sidelined by the pandemic, and I wanted to go back. It's a solid bar with a great bartender. I had a locally brewed Carbon 4 IPA and a Mortlock 15-year-old single malt. The IPA was straight-up stuff, and Mortlock is almost always fantastic, a muscular, bold whiskey. The evening was off to a great start. Here's an observation about Madison. We were wandering around the square in the middle of town where the Capitol building is. Now, in Harrisburg, the Capitol building is surrounded by state offices, law firms, lobbyists. In Madison... The square is lined with coffee houses, bars, and cheese shops. I'm thinking that's a better option. We walked over to the Old Fashioned. It's a Madison institution, and it was hopping on a Monday night. We put our names in and hit the bar, where I ordered their namesake cocktail. Now, anywhere else, an Old Fashioned is a whiskey cocktail. Whiskey, sugar, bitters, splash of soda, orange slice, maybe a cherry, and ice. That's mostly what you get in a Wisconsin old-fashioned, but instead of whiskey and a splash of soda, you get domestic brandy and a good slug of 7-Up. They drink them by the buckets out there, and my friends, they're good. Best of all, in the heart of the state capital, the old-fashioned sells their namesake cocktail for $6.75. Steal! And the second one tastes as good as the first. Heather and her crew showed up. Man, the boys had grown and we got a table. We got two orders of the Old Fashioned's renowned fried cheese curds. They are not just for tourists. And a plate of a dozen deviled eggs that was a work of art. I'm going to post a picture of it for you. Kathy and I got fish fries. She went with the classic walleye. I opted for yellow perch. Delicious. And the shoestring fries were outstanding. For dessert, I opted for a draft of that new Glarus 30th anniversary quadruple I told you about back in episode 19. And it was... Well, it was so good that when we headed out the next morning, I talked Kathy into stopping at the brewery. It wasn't all that difficult. And we got two four-packs of the quadruple. And a case of their Wisconsin Belgian red cherry beer. And a case of the famous Spotted Cow. And, well, a bunch of other stuff. You can't get New Glarus beer outside of Wisconsin. So I loaded up. 
After we'd rearranged the luggage, we headed southwest through the hills and ridges and a lot of freaking wind to Ames, Iowa. We were having dinner with a dear friend of mine, Maureen Ogle, a historian of American food and drink. She wrote Ambitious Brew, a landmark book on American brewing history. We've met on several occasions, but she's been wanting to meet Kathy, who doesn't, and following the progress of our home renovations with keen interest. We had to stop. It was a great time. We met her husband, Bill, two daughters, and a son-in-law. We broke out whiskey, muckled on some solid home-cooked food and excellent cheeses, and dates! Sorry, I really like dates. And we had a wonderful time. I love you, Maureen. Next day was a long one, 10 plus hours of driving to Denver. We stopped at Thunderhead Brewing in Kearney, Nebraska. It was just a quick stop with a pretty decent red ale and a rib-sticking calzone, and then on to Denver. We checked into our hotel and walked out the back door to the Grange Hall, some big food court kind of thing, with a brewery, Little Dry Creek Brewing. Holy crap, what great beer. Their Broken Arrow Alt Beer was one of the best American-made alt beers I've ever had. Properly bitter, not overly aromatic, and the Bar 16 Pilsner was proper. I think we had some good food, but man, them beers. The next day, we got up fairly early and went over to Kathy's Aunt Gretchen's house. A substantial part of Kathy's family upped sticks back in the 90s and moved to Denver from upstate New York. We don't get to see them so often, so this was great. I love Gretchen. She's such a sweetheart. But I left Kathy with her and went over to Leopold Brothers to get the interview you're about to hear. First, let me tell you about the three-chamber still. I told you about pot stills and column stills back in episode 16. If you haven't listened to that one yet and you aren't familiar with whiskey stills, you might want to take a listen first because the three-chamber is an outlier. There's no way around it. It looks like a piece taken out of an oddly built column still cylindrical pieces are bolted together but in taller sections than a column still it's chunky and even a bit squat despite being 20 feet tall it does gleam in shiny copper but there are external pipes bolted on and it's got the black trim typical of a vendome made still also there are visually four chambers to the still which is a bit confusing but there's only distillation taking place in three of them the top chamber is a beer preheater The fermented beer, with grains and all in it, flows into there and is heated by the waste steam coming off the still, so that it's hot and ready to go when it drops into the first chamber. Because that's what happens. The bottom chamber will be emptied of the spent beer, the liquid in the middle chamber drops down into the bottom, the liquid in the top chamber drops into the middle, and that warmed beer enters into the first chamber. Steam is continually flowing through the still, bottom to top, and heating the beer to strip off alcohol and aromatics while leaving most of the water behind. The liquids stay in each chamber about 30 minutes, and each chamber brings off different components to the condenser. From the top chamber, alcohol and lighter aromatics. The middle chamber, still some alcohol, heavier alcohol-soluble aromatics. In the bottom chamber, the alcohol is already gone, and it's pretty much just water-soluble aromatics that you rarely, if ever, get in a column still. As Todd will point out, that's a total of 90 minutes that the beer and grain is in contact with live steam, compared to a typical run through a column still of about 90 seconds. You would expect that to have an effect, and as we noted back in the tasting, it surely does. I wish we'd kept the recording going, because after we turned it off, we had the bright idea to open a bottle of old Overholt 100 proof, and that was even more different. Anyway, that's the mechanics of the three-chamber still. For the history of how Todd got to be running a three-chamber still in Colorado, and the fine points of how it works, you'll have to hear the interview. Here we go. Hey, I'm here with uh, Todd Leopold at Leopold Brothers Distillery? Distilling? Should I ask? Uh, In Denver, Colorado. How are you doing? Uh, Wonderful. Beautiful day, beautiful morning, and I think fall might be upon us. (laughs) Finally. Sure did feel that way. Overdue. I, I have to say, it is a, a pleasure and a, uh, a privilege and honor to have you on the show. I, this, is, this is a great interview for, uh, for the podcast. Well, it's, it's just as exciting for, for me. As, as you know, I've followed you since you're uh, writing about beer when I was a young pup just getting into right, the industry. you were a brewer it, first. I was a brewer first yeah. for a good 15 years, and... and 
Um, so for you, you know, you know, guys like John Hansel and, and some of these writers that have been around for a long time, you guys are OG for me, so it's an honor. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so with that said, put us in context. What, why, are, why are you distilling now? Why are you distilling in Denver particularly? And why do you distill what you do? It's a big... Yeah. Go ahead, let it rip. It, well, it's, a, it's a bit of a story. So we, we opened a brew pub in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1999. And uh, we were the closest part of the Michigan football stadium, the big house. And so as a result, we were kind of a default sports bar, whether we wanted to be or not. Right. I, I you know, I loved hockey. I couldn't, you know, I was there for a decade, couldn't tell you a single player's name. Football just wasn't really my, my thing. <laughs> Uh, but we, we had a, in, in Michigan, like so many states, uh, I don't have to tell you, have squirrely laws. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep you from going down the Pennsylvania, <laughs> Pennsylvania rabbit hole here today, because that would require a couple hours. I managed to avoid it the whole time so far. One of these days I'm going to let loose. Yeah, uh, kudos to you for that, because it, it's a thing. But in Michigan, we had a manufacturing license, and it's one of those states where you have to buy... I don't even remember what it was called, Class C or whatever it was, liquor license, so that you could sell alcohol. So technically, we were a tasting room. It was a very big tasting room. <laughs> uh, you know, we had big German-style picnic tables, and that was one of the things I brought that I loved from Germany, where you have to talk to people you right. know, when, when you go out, which I just love, and we figured out a way to make it disarming. We brought in board games. Right. So that, you know, it's very easy to meet people when you're playing Battleship or Connect Four or Risk. Um, but we but um, I went to Cebu uh, class in 96 and then I went to Domans um, and, and worked at some breweries over there and came back. And, and so uh, Domans being the brewing school, in brewing school in Germany. Germany. I'm sorry, just outside of Munich. Yep. Um, I'm, I, I'll pronounce the city, but I'll butcher it. And I don't <laughs> I don't want to do that. To, yeah, we'll just leave. I was, I was really excited about making Keller beer, unfiltered lagers, because, of course, nobody, not nobody, I have to watch that. Right. Uh, very that. few people <laughs> were making unfiltered lagers at the time. And to me, um, you know, that uh, a Keller beer means it, it has a hint of sulfur without mm -hmm. being overwhelming. The hops that we're using, we were getting direct from Johannes Bart, and they didn't blend, so you could choose the hops from regions, nice. which made it so they were even more distinctive. Well, the problem with that is, is that most of the, you know, people that were in a beer were used to Paulaner, and they were they were used to all the Germany imports that have been filtered, and it wasn't the same thing. Yeah. So they were saying, "This isn't German beer," and I'm like, "Well, it is." <laughs> uh, and <laughs> well, what, what, what actually happily saved me is I don't know anything about cars either. I wasn't a very good fit for Michigan on those two <laughs> counts of football and not knowing anything about cars. But there was a merger, so some of the people in the local uh, homebrew clubs started going uh, overseas and would go to these smaller breweries. And they're like, yeah, it is a lot like Todd Spears. And I'm wow. like, well, I tried to. Anyway. Um, because we made beer and I was a bit stubborn, you know, I was the guy that wouldn't let people use lemon for their hefeweizen. And that lasted one week before I grew up. I was young and, and, and foolish and, and it took, you know, a week for my brother to explain to me what I should have known, which is they bought the beer. Yeah, let them do whatever they want. What, it's what they like. And that was a very good early lesson for me that's carried through into whiskey you know, where we get people who come in and say, I really like your bourbon with, I had one, uh, one woman, elderly woman who said she really liked our rye, Maryland rye whiskey with Diet Dr. Pepper. And everybody started laughing at her. And I said, well, hold on. And I said, do you like the drink? And she, she said, I love it. And I said, tell them to get their own damn drink. You can do what you want. <laughs> But any, but anyways, we so the, so we just made unfiltered lagers, and especially in 1999, early 2000s, the beer explosion hadn't really hit yet, and so we can't. We turned out to be a place that big groups would go to, and if you got a group of 20 people and you only serve beer, easily half of them aren't all that happy, no matter what you're making. And they would either start their night or end their night and go uptown to get cocktails or wine or whatever. And we realized that was stupid. So the only way to fix it, because we were a manufacturer, was to pull a distilling license. So that's what we did. 
and we became one of a handful of, I don't know if there were any other distillery breweries. We also pulled a winemaking license so I could make vermouth because again, I was young and stupid and thought people were going to drink martinis. (laughs) Nobody drank martinis. No no one. Uh, Our best sellers were vodka tonic, gin and tonic. And of course my brother called it before then. Uh, And then eventually Red Bull. Of course. Red, Red Bull and vodka yep. because, you know, my staff begged me, this is what people want. And what I did was I said, great, go uptown, tell me which one is the most expensive vodka and Red Bull and then add a dollar. <laughs> so that was my little, little bit of spite, but you could still get, you could still get right. what you wanted. Yep. But that's why we, we, we make so many different things because I was, my main goal was to populate a back bar. Okay. So I would make a, you know, a, a, an orange liqueur, a coffee liqueur, blackberry liqueur, you know, my version of what uh, back then people would think of Chambord. I made a coffee liqueur to allow them to, to make as many different uh, things as possible. And then to kind of, bu- to add to that, um, Eastern Market in Detroit is a is kind of a fruit wholesaling hub with trucks going in and out, and I used to go there and get fruit that was useless to them because it was mm. overripe. Flip them twenty bucks and they'd fill my car with peaches or mangoes or whatever the hell it is, and then I'd uh, make a liqueur out of it. And what's the box say? Oh, it's from California. Fine, California peach liqueur. <laughs> make a peach fizz or I don't know, whatever. And when it was gone, it was gone. And that's how we got to where we were. Uh, you know, it, it made us successful at the pub. And then the two places we were distributing, they were the only two places that had distributors in the early 2000s who understood what we were doing was San Francisco, a, a distributor called Pacific Edge, okay. and London. So those were our two. We couldn't get it in New York City because the distributors were were too big and didn't care and didn't get it. We would have loved to have been on at, you know, Pegu Pegu Club and PDT and all those kinds of, well, we just couldn't get into that market. But we started getting, doing very well in California and San Francisco in particular. You know, finally got to the point where uh, our building was bought out from under us in 2007. We kept trying to buy it and thought they were crazy with the number that they were asking. (laughs) You know, because when you have a successful business, the first thing you want to do is buy the damn building, right? And, right. and they just were, were charging way too much. We couldn't afford it. And then somebody bought it in 2007. We know what happened in 2008. Ooh, the right. firm that bought the building went bankrupt, but not before kicking us out. Oh. So we came back to Colorado. Scott and I went to Columbine High School. Oh. Uh, and our parents were still here. Our sister is a teacher in that, uh, that county school system that feeds into Columbine. Um, and so we came back here, uh, Colorado allows self-distribution, which was very important. So yep. we get to have that one-on-one interaction with people and tell the story. And, um, that, that was a massive advantage because you'd show up at a liquor store in those days and most of them had never met a distiller before. So I'd walk in the door and, you know, he, whoever it was would immediately end the meeting that they had with a distributor. And I'm like, I... I have nothing to do. I'm happy to wait in line. He's like, no, no, no. They're pitching me on the latest, you know, jello shot, whatever. Um, and it's great to have retailers that are interested. Oh, it was, it was great. It was, I mean, you know, I, I have this conversation with folks, you know, you know, like, you know, Lance and, and Dave Smith at St. George, what mm-hmm. it was like to sell in the abyss. Yeah. Uh, you know, where you're trying to explain where people would stop and say, wait a minute, you keep saying you, <laughs> right. you know, ma- did this right. with the gin. I'm like, yes, I'm a, I'm a distiller. I uh-huh. made this. And of course, more often than not, what you would get, you mean like bathtub gin? Like they couldn't even get their head around that this was legal or that I had professional degrees or or that I had any semblance of understanding of what I was what, what I was talking about. Um, so it's fun talking to, you know, folks that are in the old guard because it's the same thing that the brewers went through. Yes, you know, Ken Grossman is an absolute legend now, but he had to deal with the, what do you mean you made this beer? No, you don't know what you're doing. This well, beer so, can't be I, any good. Carol Stell tells that story. She's like, yeah, I had, it was like the Ginger Rogers thing. I was doing all that in high heels and dancing. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. I, and of course I'm, you know, I, yeah. I, 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 I'm sure. 
um, you know, that it was even, you know, a a harder path for, for women to deal with. But so I, you know, I say that all the time when I talk, you know, we went to uh, Bourbon and Beyond, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, Nicole and I did, and it it was a room full of people. They were doing whiskey flights where 30 people would fill a very, very nice tent, which I marvel at as a small producer. (laughs) Um, and Nicole and I would walk through, you know, the whiskeys with them, and, and they were uh, fully engaged. Nicole I apologize. Like, no, 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 just for my audience. Uh, so. Nicole Austin, the master distiller at George Dickel, right. with whom we have a collaboration, uh, Rye Whiskey. Yeah, and really so, good one. I'll uh, throw that in. Thank you. Yes. Uh, we're very proud of it. Oh, no, thank and, you. And she, she is a... She is a world class blender. I'll, and, I'll, and another I'll, I'll really good interview. Oh, from she's. My side. I yeah. couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Um, but. It, it, they were filling the tent with 30 people every hour on the hour. Wow. And understand from my perspective, this is still new. I am stunned that anybody cares right. about any of the details that we have. And it makes me, uh, it makes me happy. To me, the, 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 it's just a very new thing and it's a very welcome thing. Because, at, 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 you know, at our, at our shop here in Denver, our whole attention to every little detail is our thing you know that that's what we do we try to how do we make this the best possible spirit that we can where do we source it what tools do we use what do we use for malt if it's a liqueur do we use honey do we use sugar what kind of you know so when we are running into people who care about these details hooray um i'll I'll never forget and and, uh this was in uh, at bar agricole in san francisco we did uh they asked me to make a maraschino liqueur uh bar agricole did and so i did and then we had a launch there and uh, Lance was good enough to show it, and Dave Smith from, from St. George. And it was two hours of me walking through all the choices and how I made the maraschino liqueur. And I didn't mean for it to go two hours. That was not intentional. But um, to everybody's credit, nobody left. Nobody fell asleep. Nobody threw tomatoes at me. And they, they were, and they kept asking questions. Yes. That's exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you want to talk about how we handle the sugar or, or, you know, the, the, the traditional use of honey and, okay, what kind of honey and why and how much and how dry do you make that? You know, all of these things, I can talk your ear off about that. It's wonderful from my perspective because, you know, you and I grew up in an era where they're selling things with frogs and, yeah. you know, what, what, whatever the hell else uh, they're, they're, they're trying to do to, to sell these things and for people to care what it is they're eating and what it is they're drinking and then you add in the historical aspect of, of the things that we do. Um, to me, it's all fascinating. All these older methods of making cordials and spirits and malt, and it's just bottomless. And it keeps me whistling to work because, uh, you know, not, Nicole and I say this all the time, there's not a week that goes by where I have some piece of information that I thought was foundational and that, stone gets kicked <laughs> kicked loose and said nope and, right. you, and you realize how much you have to learn how bottomless all of these topics are and it's it's both frustrating and exciting all at the same time yes yes and humbling <laughs> and all of the producers that i respect whether we're talking about malt whether we're talking about beer or chefs or whatever the hell they all have this humility that's underlying, and it's because we've all been knocked on our ass so many times we've lost count, whether that's, you know, financially or decisions that you make or understandings that you have of a particular process and realize that, no, you're wrong and, and you need to, you know, study harder. And it's a, it's a very, it's a shared thing. We all know how hard these businesses are. Mm-hmm. And, and we're, uh, and I, actually, I, sh- I should probably check with my brother. I, our anniversary is, I think, this week. Oh, we, we, may, we may have missed it. We don't make that. We're not real. We're very bad at marketing. Uh, I, I, I will readily admit, but this is our 24th anniversary. Oh, nice. And as we start to see, you know, some of the icons, like, you know, Anchor, you know, that absolutely yeah. crushed my soul. And yes. anybody who, I mean, to me, Anchor Porter was one of the beers that got me into this uh, in the first place. Yeah. Um, the, the way beer can taste like this. Uh, um, as a quick aside, what act, what got me into uh, thinking I could do this was Eric Warner's book on Hefeweizen. Oh yeah, 
and I've never met him, and I've never had a chance to thank the man, but Hefeweizen was the first time I had a beer where the yeast was driving the flavor. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm like, wait, what? Yeast? Right. Wait, what? Did, you know, so, I mean, I didn't understand even the basic mechanics at that time. And I flipped the book cover over, and there was a picture of Eric, and it said he was an American who went to Germany to study and learn how to be a brewmaster. And I'm yeah. like, wait, that's you can do that? <laughs> I want to do that. Yeah. And so that's what's started me down the rabbit hole of, you know, this is possible. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I don't know if it was just a happenstance, but for me in, in high school and college, nobody brought up the idea of starting your own business. I never saw Not that as a possibility. Right, right. Um, it was my brother that had the entrepreneurial spirit, which he has to this day, thank goodness, or <laughs> we, we would have sold forever ago. It's a good combination to have. It is. We're yeah. very fortunate in that our skills are very, very different, and it keeps us from arguing um, because we're brothers. And I don't know the first thing about fun. He got his uh, econ degree from Northwestern and then his master's from Stanford in environmental okay. engineering. Oh, wow. All of those things are, are, you know, beyond my understanding. And he doesn't know the first thing about beer or, or distillation. And so it, 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 it keeps us rowing in the same direction because we need each other. Yeah. And I learned very, very quickly that I'm horrible at business and to shut up and let him steer the boat. You know, which can be hard. I'm a younger, yes. I'm a younger brother. It can be difficult to accept that you don't have those skills. Um, and I, I was uh, at least strong enough to be able to know what I didn't know and step back and let him run things. But that's what led to where we are today in the building that we're in that we uh, had up and running in 2015 now. So 24 years in and this building is you know, about eight years old now, which is hard to believe. Gorgeous building, too. Thank you. Yeah, yeah that's, you know, the, the, all of this that you're sitting in is is my brother and my my mom, uh, textile major at Cornell, and my dad, uh-huh. my dad was a landscape architect and trained at Syracuse and Harvard. He did the grounds outside that's that you saw. Nice. Yeah. That, that's all him. Um, and then my mom on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was all her. So all of the, most of the stuff that's in here is recycled, old mill in Ohio. These are uh, cut-up boxcar planks. Oh, wow. It, yeah. Um, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> My brother did. Uh, always there have a go. smarter brother if you can. <laughs> uh, and then we've got Oregon pine on the roof, the same wood that we use on the fermenters. Yeah. And then those cans are from a ship, uh, a company that pulls apart old ships really? and repurposes everything. So those to me, and, or, or to you as well, probably look like pot stills, but those yeah. are those are old sh- uh, searchlights basically from ships that oh, they repurposed. Really cool. Yeah. I assumed they were they were custom, like no. purpose designed for this. No, just a very very clever brother. So the reason everybody assumed I'm here, I, I, I'm sure, is about the three chambers still. Yeah, because uh, that's at least for the the geeks among us, that's the star. Yeah. Uh, why? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna explain the whole thing offline. Uh, I'll write that out and explain it because I don't want to chew up this time. Let's get to why. Why did you think that the Three Chamber Still was important enough, a component of rye whiskey, that you designed and commissioned one? <laughs> uh, I mean, the first in decades. Yeah. Are decades? A hundred? I don't know when the last one was built. I do know the last one that shut down was Baltimore Pure. The, they still have this stack up. Um, from their boiler house um, that says Baltimore Pure on it, that's still standing. Wow. Um, if you go to the Lipman site, if you've ever oh, yeah. seen that, yeah, they, yeah. Have a, they have a nice picture of that. I know the site is still there. Uh-huh. Uh, but that was the late 60s that that shut down. Okay. Uh, I don't know when the last one was built. Right. Um, one of the things I learned from David Wondrich is that the U.S. Patent Office burnt down, so that's part of the reason we don't know who... We don't know who who started it. Uh-huh. His premise is that it came from Germany. Okay. We, we chuckled about that earlier. <laughs> Everything to do with uh, fermentation seems to come from the Germans without any actual hard evidence. Yeah. Um, basically, it was it was coming across the document. The the Crampton and Tolman paper mm-hmm. was the big one, which where everybody was using it. Now, if and it that was a just. 
briefly an IRS? Yep, it was an IRS document that they put together right after the Bottled and Bond Act where they were trying to put together the rules, what are called the standards of identity now. And so they were looking at, at 31 distilleries, half bourbon, half rye, and they were trying to put the rules together. How long before you can drop age statements? How much corn do you have to have? They were, they were starting from scratch, so they were looking at what everybody was doing, so they're like, okay, here are the reasonable rules that we have to follow uh, for, in, in order for it to be called rye whiskey or bourbon. And they were essentially looking at what was actually happening. Yes. And saying, and then crafting the should be. That's exactly yeah. it, and which, that fa it's, which is fascinating. Yes. All of this stuff blows me away. It's like, oh, yeah, this stuff doesn't fall from the sky. Somebody has to write these <laughs> rules. Yeah. And... What, what fascinated me was, I wouldn't have done it if there was only one distiller that did it. Right. What fascinated me was that everybody was using it. And, and the three chambers. The, the three chambers still. The other part that fascinated me was not only did it completely disappear, nobody had any idea what the hell I was talking about anytime I brought yeah. it up. And when you're talking to these legacy distillers whose families have been in you know, bourbon and rye production for, you know, a hundred plus years and they don't know what the hell you're talking about. They're like, yeah. okay, this is weird. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's like well, it had completely passed out of everyone's memory. Yeah. It, wow. And you know, what I really came to understand is what happened was, um, it, it, it's incredibly inefficient compared with column stills. Okay. So the, the easy way I like to put it, um, Vendome was good enough to help me with the math. But if we turn the, the chamber that we had built, which is 20 feet tall and 5 feet in diameter, and if we turn that into a column still, you could crank out about, with the same amount of copper, about 200 barrels a day, and we get two, right? <laughs> which always, it's my favorite reaction. People laugh, and rightfully so, yeah. rightfully. That's crazy. It's crazy that it's 100-fold less efficient, but... The, the, the big one that got me was it was a, a engineering flow sheet that had uh, from a higher walker plant in Peoria. Peoria at one time was a distilling mm -hmm. epicenter, and they had all of these massive, massive distilleries down there, plenty of access to water, you know, yada, yada, yada. So they, I, they, I think they have a, a preserved row of distillers housed oh, on the block. My, yeah, yeah my, my, my in-laws uh, grew, grew up there. Okay. And so we would go up the hill to what they call Distillers Row. And yeah. to me, it's like uh, the movie A Christmas Story on steroids. <laughs> it, it really is like walking back in Midwestern time, which yeah. is something you can uh, uh, understand very, very well. This the, It was the largest distillery at the time. They did 100,000 gallons of whiskey per day. And in the flow sheet, they called out a column still for rye whiskey, but also a three-chamber still. So knowing what I know, which is that it's a hundredfold more efficient to use a column than a three-chamber, why the hell is Hiram Walker putting in a three-chamber still to make yeah. rye? And the obvious answer is it makes a rye whiskey that's so different that the average consumer can tell. The second step with that is that I understood that they were using it as blending. And when you finish this story, this is when I watch, when I'm talking to people about it, this is when the light bulbs go on where they get it. The blending history that we have in, in the UK and in Canada is still intact. It got broken here in Prohibition. And mm -hmm. the way that they made whiskey was they would make a very flavorful, weird, quirky whiskey. So in Canada, that means we know what whistle pig is now. Right? right? And what are they doing with that? They're blending it together with lighter. I'm greatly simplifying here, obviously, sure. but they're, they're taking that very flavorful whiskey and taking a 10% chunk of it and adding with column distilled rye that's much, much lighter. And now you got Canadian Club. You want to make it a bigger price point with a little more flavor? Add 30%. It's a blending tool. And the same thing in, in the UK, right? Lag, Lagavulin or... or, or Lafrogue, right? These are acquired taste whiskeys that a handful of people, especially in the 60s, 70s, right. 80s, and 90s, were buying. Nobody was buying them. People forget yeah. that. Now they're adored now. I adore these whiskeys, but for the most part, they couldn't give it away. How did they keep the lights on? They punted barrels to Johnny Walker, who put it and blended it together with column distilled whiskey, a lighter whiskey, mm -hmm. and now it's contributing a note. So now I saw that. I'm like, there it is. Okay. 
So that's what the three chamber was used for. So Old Overholt, for example, as far as we can tell, again, confirming this with Noah Rothbaum and David Wondrich, who are far better historians than I am, um, as far as we can tell, Old Overholt was sold as three chamber and wasn't blended. We're not 100% certain. We're still digging to see if that's the case. That's a big deal. That was a, that was a rarity. Baltimore Pure, we know, um, because I was the one that told them and sent them with Wayne Curtis, another uh, historian and yeah. writer, down the rabbit hole, because I told them they use this for blending, and they 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 didn't tell me uh, to my face at the time, but they didn't believe me. Really, <laughs> and I don't and I don't blame them. Sure. I don't blame them if I you know they didn't ask. I could have given them. I could have saved them a lot of trouble. I'm like, I got this from this document. I'm not making this up. Right. Uh, but they found a few pieces that uh, that called out Baltimore Pure, and they were blending the three chambers still with column. And in my opinion, that's what you were getting uh, around Prohibition uh, if you ordered a cocktail. More often than not, you were oh. getting a, a blend of mm -hmm. the three chamber and the column so that you get the oiliness, you get the top notes, you get the beautiful flavors out of a three chamber, and it's blended with a column. And that's, of course, why I reached out to Nicole and that was just happenstance um, because I wanted to release the three chamber on its own, but I wanted to release two unicorns. One is just the three chamber. Right. And I knew that not everybody would understand it. It's, it, it's confusing. It doesn't take, you know, for 99.9% .9 of the drinking pub public, MGP rye is rye whiskey. Yeah. And it's a beautiful whiskey. It absolutely is, but it's not all that's out there. So when they come across us, they have two reactions. You know, I either get David Broom, you know, the writer telling me it's the most important American whiskey release of the, of the 21st century, to which my wife responded, well, honey, that's only 20 years. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you Keeping you grounded. You are not allowed to have an ego here, believe me. Uh, which I don't agree with David Broom. It's a lovely thing to say. Sure. It really is a very nice thing. Or people that just don't get it and say this doesn't, you know, this doesn't taste right or, you know, that, that kind of thing where they just don't understand it. And we knew that was coming. But what the collaboration allows us to do, it, it pulls, you still get the beautiful notes and the work that I did with the three chamber, but it makes it much more familiar. And it's the same thing that worked with Johnny Walker. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that works with Canadian Club where now um, we're hoping, Nicole and I, that we're the first in a long line of this where we're reinvigorating the American blending culture where you have these unique whiskeys and the un these unique distilleries because the important thing is uh, to remember we're still independent. It's still just Scott and I and we're working together with a larger company to make something tasty. And to me, that speaks to the vision that, that Nicole has and the willingness that, that she had and the people at, at both Dickel and Diageo to keep an open mind I, and to work with a smaller honestly, distiller. I think what they have allowed her to do with Dickel is fabulous. And what they're getting rewarded for. Yes. They're getting rewarded for. And to let a distiller call the shots instead of some marketing schematics or demographics or whatever is going to get you more interesting stuff. And yeah. if you're into whiskey, understand how, or, or, or food in general, that's a beautiful thing to have something that, you know, you, that, that's a term, right? Chef-driven, mm -hmm. right? That you have yeah. somebody who understands, you know, flavors and, 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 you know, what's interesting to whiskey distillers. Because to me, it's fascinating, you know, and, and when we talk to folks, you know, about this and we go through it, you know, one bottle at a time, it's really, really rewarding to see the light bulbs go off where they understand, oh, that's what I'm tasting. Okay, I get it. You know, they, they have a bit more context for it. Um, so and it's what, just fantastic. What is it that the three chamber does that a pot still or a chamber still does, or a column still, excuse me. So the, so the two biggest things are, are uh, residence time. So mm -hmm. it's direct steam. A column still from entry as fermented mash to exit as animal feed is 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. For the three chambers still, by the time a mash has run through all three chambers, it's 90 minutes. So that's the first thing. Big it's difference. a lot long, right? It's a lot longer thermal degradation time. 
and reflux and all the, I mean, obviously I can talk to you about this for five hours, but I'll do my best to simplify. But the other biggest thing is it's operating at a higher temperature. Uh So that bottom chamber is operating at starting at 220 degrees and it just keeps going up as you're running through the is where the steam comes in. that's where the steam comes in it's the hottest point of the still still it's also where that bottom chamber of mash really has almost no alcohol so really what you're doing is you're extracting oil out of rye water is the easiest way to understand it because the the fresh steam is coming in but it's hitting mash that has dropped that has all right that right. almost has no alcohol in it at yeah. all so what it, that in itself is going to drive the temperature of the still up to you know 212 assuming oh, everything right. is right. is equal and ignoring altitude uh-huh. and all that water boils at 212 ethanol 178 and change of course we're dealing with all sorts of chemicals and we've got solids in and blah 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 um, but the it, it is a it is a higher temperature, and that higher temperature is pulling oils out. And those oils do two things: one, it gives it a massive chewy consistency um, and, and palate coating that's very very different. Yeah, honestly, the, the texture is the biggest that, thing. That's for me. the it's, m- just it's a massive right. Completely different. Yes, and then to top it off, those those oils contain aromatics. So to me, that's rose ketones, that, that's linalool, lavender aromas, all these big, big floral notes. You know, when I, when I ran the still when uh, uh, Dave Wondrich and Noah Rothbaum were here, you know, I told them, I said, what do you taste? He's like, oh, my God, I see what you mean. It tastes like somebody put lavender into the condenser, but because it's extracting so much linalool out of it that that's the control point. It's a bit, this, is, this will be great for you. It's a bit like how diacetyl or, or, or acetaldehyde is a, is a maturation indicator. Mm, okay, mm-hmm. For three-chamber rye in particular, it's the linalool. And it's how long before all the other esters and all the wood sugars and everything catch up to where the linalool is. But, so the first two years, it tastes awful. It tastes almost like a, a very poorly made lavender... Spirit. This is, the, spirit. this is the first two years the of the first, barrel. Yes, sir. Yes. The first two years of maturation, it's it's a complete train wreck. <laughs> and, and as everybody, you know, as my assistants were, were tasting it, and one of them has since left, he's like, boy, Todd, I don't know. And I'm like, you know, this is going to take years. This is not going to be a two-year whiskey. And after that four-year whiskey, I was, I was quite pleased with where the esters are. And you'll notice with this, you know, bottle of six year that you have in front of you now, it's night and day from where the four year was mm. because of the way the maturation occurs, the way that we ferment and the way it takes time for those organic acids and esters to, to increase. It's really, really night and day. But as it's getting older, and I think I'm kind of looking at eight year as w- the sweet spot, somewhere between six oh, and eight, wow. uh-huh. um, where I'll be very happy. We'll have a few barrels that will run to 15 because why the hell not? Yeah. But that's where I think people are really, really going to be blown away um, with this latest release uh, by, by, by the unity of flavors, by how big the whiskey is, by how uh, you know, chewy and dense the finish in is. But also now, you know, the, the flavors are, and aromas are a little bit more, um, you have an anchor to reach to, I think, a little bit more than, than you did at the four-year mark. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to see how people uh, react to it. Yeah, I hope, and uh, as we just, I hope people drink it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah well, as we mentioned, the, the, this year's release, we're putting them out in 200-milliliter flasks. And the, the, we're, we're trying to make it so that people don't buy it and put it on a shelf. Yeah. And, and I have people say they're, they're, they're trying to be kind and they're trying to be reverent. But people tell me that, hey, this is going to be set aside for a special occasion. And if I'm standing next to them, I always put my hand on their shoulder and I said, every day is a special special occasion. Don't run your life, you know, and it it sounds like I'm giving them personal advice, but that's (laughs) not my intent. It's, this is meant to be enjoyed. I want you to enjoy this. I want you to drink that. So dropping it in the 200 milliliter flask, we're hoping that's going to encourage people you know, to, to buy it, you know, give it out as a stocking stuffer and share it with friends yeah. and actually drink this stuff and, and enjoy it. So that's the idea behind that. Okay. Now, that's only half of the interview. It went a full hour, and I don't want to make that long an episode because I still want to tell you about the Bierstadt Brewery and our visit to the Rocky Mountain National Park, and the outstanding Kansas City barbecue we had on the way home. 
So here's what I decided to do. We're going to have our first bonus episode. I'll be back next week with the second half of episode 25, October 26th, Thursday, 10.30 a.m., just like usual. And then the following Thursday, November 2nd, which is Kathy's birthday, there'll be another brand new episode, a Thanksgiving special with lots of turkey talk, drinks tips for the holiday, a sweet potato pie, and a special project I've been working on to get everyone I interviewed this year back on the show. Three episodes in two weeks. Just remember, after that, there'll be one more episode on the 16th, and then I'm taking four weeks off, my first break in a year. We got to do Thanksgiving and hopefully move back into our house. And then we'll be back with the 2023 holiday show on December 14th. We're already working on it. Oh, there was one more quick thing I wanted to tell you about. We got back from Colorado on a Thursday afternoon, and it was crazy. We had to rush around getting our mail and stuff for Nora to take along on a trip she was making and reassuring Pippin that we really were home. But the next day, I got back in the car and took a beautiful, relaxed drive up to York Hollow Brewing in Mansfield for their wonderfully silly Carnival of Stouts event. Every year, Jared York, the brewer, makes a batch of Imperial Stout and kegs off some to add flavors to. Crazy flavors. This year's stouts included cotton candy, smoked jalapeno, chocolate cake, cranberry, orange creamsicle, and fruit punch. And then top that off with, it was a white imperial stout. What's that? I'll let Jared explain from their menu. So what is a white stout? First of all, it isn't white. It looks more like a pale ale, but brewed with smoked malt and aged on cocoa nibs, and finally combined with cold-steeped coffee. These three attributes each lend a flavor similar to what a stout tastes like. Now, if you know me, you know that he had me at smoked malt. I saw on Facebook that they'd home-smoked a bunch of malt about a month ago, and I'd been waiting patiently, or not so patiently, for the beer to come out. I got a flight of the flavors. I'll be honest, I couldn't even finish the small glass of the fruit punch. But the orange creamsicle and chocolate cake were nice. The cranberry was a bit underflavored, I thought. And the cotton candy was sweet with a hint of caramel, but that smoked jalapeno was great. And I would definitely drink more. A little touch of heat, nice flavor of the pepper, and the smoke came through more. So then I had to get a half pour of the straight stuff called My Inner Demons. It was the color of a darker pale ale, and the coffee and cocoa were there, but not overdone. The smoke was only a wisp. I could have used more of that, but I'm not really complaining. If I didn't have a 90-minute drive home, I'd have had another, for sure. If you haven't been up to York Hollow, you ought to go. I thoroughly enjoy the atmosphere. The food is great. Had an excellent plate of fish and chips, which is 15% off on Fridays. And the beers are always at least interesting, and sometimes amazing. Plus, beautiful area. Neat small town. Finally, one last report that I'd hoped would be much longer— I went to the Hearts Log Heritage Festival in Alexandria, PA for the first time last weekend. It's always the second Saturday in October. I'd heard a lot about it. Tiny town, huge number of crafters and food stands, thousands of people. But this year the weather was not kind. It was a cold and rainy day bracketed by painfully good weather on the Friday and Sunday. There were still at least 500 people walking along Main Street and yes, lots of stands. I stopped at a couple. Saw some gorgeous pottery, got some chicken corn soup at the high school band's porch, sampled a nice dry Chenin Blanc from Burnt Timbers Winery, and I talked to the people at the information stand. And then we cruised down to Standing Stone Coffee in Huntingdon to warm up and headed home. I, I wish I'd stayed and had more to report, but the rain was tough. It looked really good, though, and I will be back next year, and I'm hoping they get a gorgeous day. Oh, and just one more thing. I'll be speaking about World Rye Whiskies at the 2023 Maryland Rye Symposium in Baltimore on Friday, November 10th. I'll be there along with keynote speaker Clay Risen, who's a friend and an excellent whiskey writer, a bunch of distillers, another good friend and colleague, writer and winemaker Carlo DeVito, and would you look at that, Todd Leopold, who'll be talking about the Three Chamber Still. Told you he was famous. Find more information and ticket sales at ryerevivalmd.com. That's 
R-Y-E-R-E-V-I-V-A-L-M-D.com. I'll be staying for Friday night's grand tasting, too. It's pretty exciting. I know I'm excited. That's the show. Thanks to Todd Leopold for the interview. I've been looking forward to that for a long time. And my thanks to everyone who suggested places to stop on our trip. That was invaluable. You can only Google so much. Pennsylvania's state bird is the ruffed grouse, and I've only ever seen one of them. I thought you should know. Remember, the bonus episode is next week. The second half of the Todd Leopold interview, my visit to Denver's Law's Whiskey House and what I learned about the effect of atmospheric pressure on whiskey aging, the fantastic barbecue Kathy and I had in Kansas City, plus the pretty good barbecue we had in the Rockies, and maybe some bits about our upcoming weekend in Cape Charles, Virginia. Then I'm back again only a week later on November 2nd for the Thanksgiving show. Turkey, drinks, lots about pies, and gravy. Yum. Until then, thanks for listening. This is Lou Bryson on Seen Through a Glass from the smack dab center of the Keystone State. <laughs>